the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and my good buddy Brian Fromm is here as well. A couple of things to let you know of. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, I encourage you to do that, by the way. We post articles. Sometimes it's stuff we talk about. Sometimes it's stuff we're not actually going to talk about on the show. But sometimes, based on your interaction and feedback, stuff that we weren't planning on talking about, we will talk about. So that's a great place to interact with us. You can also go to 1160hope.com. You can find all the shows, wherever it is that you, you get your podcasts, quite literally every platform, all the time, everywhere. Uh, our team does a great job, and they even break down the podcast to uh, content and when different stories happen in the span of the show. So... Highly, highly, highly encourage you to do that. And uh, Brian, Monday, I think since we started doing the show, has been a weird day. It is. For a number of different reasons. And a lot of times, because Brian and I are both pastors, so a lot of times the weirdness of Monday is sort of like the, you know, what do people call it, the, the holy hangover? Mm-hmm. Just sort of this uh, weird exhaustion, which I was talking to my brother yesterday. Even that feels strange to say, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah. Because, you know, I wasn't building anything. I didn't. But there is sort of like a... A general emotional, spiritual exhaustion. Um, but I, we'll talk about that a little bit later. What I want to talk about first is, and I imagine most people have uh, caught wind of this by now. Uh, you may be surprised to know President Trump uh, tweeted a few things this weekend. And uh, there's one <laughs> in particular. A few things. <laughs> one in particular that caught the eye of a whole lot of people. Why don't you fill us in on what's going on there? His timing's always interesting, right? Because it was <laughs> yeah. like first thing Sunday morning. Yeah. And uh, Donald Trump, he is, it depends on how you view him. But in some ways, it feels like a little bit of a master, like the ability to tweak people. Uh, but this one, I, I I was almost said a lot of people felt like it crossed the line. I'm just going to say this. I felt like it went, it didn't just cross the line. Like from where it went to, you can't see the line anymore. Oh, yeah. Like it's out there. So uh, Donald Trump said uh, he talked about the quote unquote progressive Democrat Congress women. Uh, but everybody knows who they're talking about. It's uh, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Elam Omar from Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, and, and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. They're kind of known as the squad. They're these freshmen, uh, congresswomen. They've been really vocal. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, they've been going at it with her. And so Trump jumped in and he said, so interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on the earth, how our government is to be run. And here's what we need to realize. Those four congresswomen, regardless of what you think of their politics, uh, Three of them were born in the United States. One of them wasn't. And all four of them are U.S. citizens. And so people are going, well, what are you talking about? And 
I don't. I think it's just blatant racism, man. It's race baiting. It's racism. And it is uh, it is this. We're going to take four women uh, of color and and kind of lump them into this. They're not from this country. Them against us. And he knows what he's doing. Right. It's them against us. Uh, go back to, I mean, that language is so strong. Go back to your country. Later in one of the other tweets, he says, go back to your countries, help them fix it, and then come back and tell us how to do it. Like, you're like, right? no, these are, and I'm, again, I love the phrase cards on the table. Laying my cards on the table, I've kind of studied, done a little bit of reading about these four women. I don't agree with almost everything they, they stand for right, policy-wise. Right. Uh, but I do know they've been elected. Uh-huh. They are American citizens. Uh, they are sitting members of Congress as much as anybody else in the House of Representatives. Uh, there is nothing that diminishes them from anybody else in that body, regardless of what you think of their policy. And Trump didn't come out and go, I really disagree with what they stand for. I really disagree right. with what they're saying. He said, no, go back to your country is is I'm going to say this right now. And you and I have tried to stay pretty middle of the road with our politics. What he tweeted yesterday is. Uh, irresponsible. Uh, it has no place. And it's just yet another sign of where I think he's leading the way in the public dialect and what we say is now um, fair game, because this is just yeah. this is, like I said earlier, not just crosses the line. This like you can't see the line anymore from where this one's at. Well, and, and to tell people of color to, quote, go back where you came from is one of the oldest tropes in the book, Absolutely. right? Like th- that's what you're saying. There is not, it, it's not, um, I mean, I think it's rooted in some real history. And I think that that is so troubling on so many levels. And I, uh, I think to address these things, not just as a bad habit nope. or a misstep, but to say, man, if we believe, and we talk about this topic a lot, that all humans are made in the image and likeness yeah. of God, uh, racism isn't just a bad idea. It's blasphemous, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we, we have to identify and call out wherever it is that we see this. And I, I would love to see an apology. I don't think it's coming, but mm-hmm. I, I think that would like, okay. So what, what I want to do is there, we, uh, we have a, a short compilation of some of, uh, oh, yeah. some of his strongest opponents. I want to, I want to play that for you and then just sort of, uh, get your reaction, see if you think it's right. So let's, let's hear that now. It is absolutely racist and un-American. The president is a, is a sick man. Right now, we have a racist president who is demeaning female members of the House of Representatives based on the color of their skin and their cultural heritage. Okay, so what do you what do you think? Are there responses right on? Are the responses too extreme? Is that is it all political theater mixed into one? How, how, I, how do you it's respond? Funny. I think it's right on and political theater. Like, uh, I think okay. it's both. Okay, uh, but here's my question: I'm. Uh, it's great to hear the responses of the Democrats or the progressive people. Uh, where's Lindsey Graham? Where's Mike Pence? And I get it. I understand how the politics are. Where's Jerry Falwell? Where's Franklin Graham? Where are these guys who've been had his back all of this time going, hey, time out. I still believe in the tax policies. I still believe in immigration. I still believe in whatever else. Right. But what the president tweeted today was uh, was out of bounds. Yeah. There's the old saying that silence is deafening. And in this case, where something is so repulsive to be yeah, tweeted about, right. 
where nobody is saying anything who is normally his backers just again screams that he's got these people in their back pocket, whether it is other politicians, faith leaders, whatever else it might be. We could still back a candidate and at the t- same time say that something they do is not OK. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is there's no way to read Donald Trump's tweets, President Trump's tweets this week and go, no, that's fine. I get it. I get where he's coming from. Blatantly racist, blatantly divisive and should be called out even by his most strident supporters. Yeah, and I, I, okay, so a couple of Christian leaders have been kind of tweeting some responses, sort of to your point that we need to call it out. J.D. Greer, uh, he tweeted a quote from Rebecca McLaw, and he said, um, she said, the uh, the New Testament is one of the most emphatically anti-racist texts ever written. Read it, and you will find that trying to marry Christianity to white-centric nationalism is like trying to marry a cat to a mouse. One Mm -hmm. is designed to hunt the other, not mate with it which I think is such a haunting observation. But then um, Bree Newsom Bass said, uh, verbal condemnations of racist rhetoric is not enough. What is the agenda for dismantling white supremacy and ending systemic racism? That's what I want to know from these politicians. Don't just say, quote, racism is bad, and then go right out here and keep enabling it in policy. Yes. Which, again, you and I aren't politicians, but we have often said in many different ways, it's not it can't just be enough for you and I in a radio studio yep. to say, hey, that's bad. Like you and I also need to look at our own lives and the ways that we perpetuate even uh, through our silence stuff that keeps people marginalized, yep. keeps the boot on people's necks. And I I'm filled both with so much anger and frustration, but also a little bit of despondency yep. because I look at us here, you know, in Elk Grove Village. And I'm like, what do, what can we possibly do? Mm-hmm. And all I know is. I don't know what we can do, but I know the answer can't be nothing. Yes, exactly. So what that looks like, and maybe that's part of what this show is, is for us to process through. All right. So what does it look like for us to actually interact with these things in a way that stands up to it, but also works towards a solution as well? And real fast, what I find so disheartening in this, too, is like for me, uh, words like this go beyond politics, but yet people can't get beyond politics. They can't speak out against it. They can't call it what it is. And that's that's what I find disheartening. And hopefully people out there, even if you vote for the guy. Uh, find it repulsive and, and would be able to stand against it. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, coming up next, there, here's a topic that uh, will at least preach to me uh, why you procrastinate, parenthetically, it has nothing to do with self-control. We're going to unpack that a little bit coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. I have no idea why we're playing Hoops Think. I'm so I, did, I had no idea that this was Hoobastank. I'm, I'm so sorry, everybody. And not yet, a fan of Hoobastank? No, I was going to say, I'm so sorry, and yet, not all that sorry. Hoobastank, though, was like the poor man's incubus. That's that's really... Did you ever listen? Maybe this is not your probably field of interest. This is probably no. <laughs> this is like a band from high school days, though. They were, you know, right around the same time. You remember Yellow Card or The Used, any of those guys? Nope. None of those bands no. even... I knew Hoobastank. Ring a bell. You did? Yeah. But not Yellow Card or, you know, Incubus. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, all right. Yes. So we're, yeah, we're, we're batting 500. We're doing okay. Uh, all right. So I mentioned it before. We're going to talk about procrastination. You want to talk about procrastination now, Brian? Ah, maybe later. <laughs> maybe tomorrow. <laughs> that <laughs> That's played, too easy. That played that out too as easy. funny as I thought it was going to. <laughs> the, fact, the fact that we even tried to play that off like it was organic makes it all the more silly. Oh, that's funny. Okay. So two articles I found. Uh, that I did not read right away, which is also ironic on procrastination. Uh, I don't. Do you have a procrastination issue, by the way? Before we go any further, 
Does this speak to you at all? It does. It does. Okay. Especially like I look back to like college and stuff. I was terribly a procrastinator, which is often has to do with maturity and stuff. But right. uh, holding off on the paper till the last minute. Or right, this right, right. But when we get into this, I'll tell you more about where my procrastination lies today because I think it's a deeper issue. Well, let's. All right, let's do that. There's two different articles. I'm going to have you speak to one, and I'll speak to the other. But they do come to very, very similar conclusions they that do. I think will surprise most of our listeners. At least it did for me. Like it made so much sense knowing that you know you and I both struggle a little bit with procrastination, yeah. but also understanding like, oh, that's what's going on. So why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about the one that you read? Yeah, it's out of the New York Times, and it says procrastination, why you procrastinate, and it has nothing to do with self-control. And the author, Charlotte Lieberman, ends up saying, self-awareness is a key part of why procrastination makes us feel so rotten. When we procrastinate, we're not only aware that we're avoiding the task in question, but also that doing so is probably a bad idea, and yet we do it anyway. And here's the big deal. She says, procrastination isn't a unique character flaw or a mysterious curse on your ability to manage time, but a way of coping with challenging emotions and negative moods induced by certain tasks, boredom, anxiety, insecurity, frustration, resentment, self-doubt. And beyond, it says procrastination is an emotion regulation problem, yes. not a time management problem. Okay, so right from my article, then the uh, businessinsider.com, there's a, an associate professor of psychology at Carleton University and blogger at Psychology Today. His name is Tim Peichel, and he said procrastination is not a time management problem. It's an emotion management problem, and he kind of goes on to talk about some of his own struggles with it, but he says procrastination is a voluntary delay of an intended act despite the knowledge that this delay may harm us. Mm. And so he wrote a book called Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. I've not read it. Maybe I'll read it later. <laughs> Let's just keep making that joke. Not the whole Love segment. the joke. But he said the emotional avoidance technique that our brain often subsequently uh, or subconsciously employs is similar to that which underlies many types of anxiety. People with anxiety often do everything they can to avoid the perceived external threat and in turn shut off access to both good and bad feelings, often leading to depression. By procrastinating, we're avoiding a task with the assumption that the task won't feel good, and that means we're missing out on any feelings of, for example, accomplishment or success. This connection between procrastination and depression has been around at least since the 90s, and the experimental evidence has Mm. poured in ever since. That's fascinating. I think that when I was, say, in college, when you're more immature, you would just procrastinate because... You know, like I'd rather play video games than right. write a paper, right? right? Um, but now that I'm older and an adult, like I don't procrastinate about more neutral things, right? Like I don't look at my lawn and go, oh, you know what? I can do that tomorrow. I can, right. like, you've got your schedule. Your schedule's kind of full. Here's where I can fit it in. I go do it. Make it happen. Exactly. And so, um, where I procrastinate now, and this is why I really resonate with these articles is uh, I procrastinate doing hard things. Yeah. And I don't mean difficult, like as in like, you know, physical, whatever. Right. But like having hard conversations with people or tackling that issue at the church that is going to be uncomfortable or that I have such a propensity to procrastinate in those. And it's exactly what they're talking about. You're like, just why do you procrastinate? Not because you don't want to have that hard conversation, but because the conversation is going to be hard. And so you're like, uh, I will be like, well, you know what? I'm going to meet with that person again next week. So we'll, right. we'll wait till then. Or, you know, maybe if we just tweak this. 
And then I totally get this because I remember having a staff member where I kept punting the hard conversation down the road. Right, right. We've all done it. That did not cause them anxiety because they didn't <laughs> right, know it. Right. It caused me <laughs> such anxiety yes. that it really had a detrimental effect on me for months until we had the hard conversation. And then you're like, well, why don't we just have that hard conversation three months ago? Right. So I totally get this article, man. But isn't how that always feels, yes. though? Like procrastinating makes so much sense. There's a TED talk that I just watched, actually. He talks about the um the distract or the procrastination monkey and he it was a series of these illustrations talking about how how the monkey is so convincing uh until there's actually like the hard deadline and yeah. then that's you know like that's the pulling all nighters to finish a paper which I definitely did for me a lot of times too it was a matter of like not just putting it off and doing nothing. I just was saying yes to everything else before yeah, it. It yeah. was anytime anyone wanted to go out, I was saying yes. Anytime anyone wanted to needed help with something, I was like, "Yep, the paper, the paper can wait." And so the the correlation here in this one article um, between procrastination and emotion was interesting. It's, it goes on to say one study attempted to tease apart the relationship between procrastination and emotion. Researchers measured 214 undergraduates on procrastination scores, as well as other various measures of depression, mindfulness, rumination, and self compassion. It found significant positive correlations between procrastination and rumination and negative correlations between procrastination and both mindfulness and self-compassion. In other words, more rumination, less mindfulness and less self-compassion were correlated with more procrastination. So you think about, Mm. I don't know if you're this way, when I put off stuff and I know I'm doing it, the self-talk that I'm often saying is, come on, man, being so lazy, just do it. Stop slacking. And part of what they're saying is the more that we our lack of self-compassion and are ruminating on how terrible we are actually perpetuates the procrastination and makes you worse at it and makes it actually stay even longer. Mm. And so it's finding that when, if we can learn to recognize it, not just as laziness, but to call it for what it actually is an, an emotional avoidance, we can actually get better at it, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. I even do this in my marriage sometimes like interesting, you know, it's Carrie and I should be taught, you know, we've got to have this talk about X, you know, it might be a big talk. It might not be a big one. And just like, Ah, you know, it's been a long day. I don't want to have that talk today. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, uh, right. She doesn't know that it's sitting out there, but in me, it's causing these feelings and, and, and it always makes it bigger than it is. So what's the answer then? What do you think mm. the answer is to those of us who have a propensity to procrastinate and kind of put off, especially the difficult things of life? Yeah. And I, I think for me, it's it's convincing and compelling to recognize that, again, we aren't just the sum of our accomplishments. Yep. And so that's something that you and I, I imagine have probably preached before. Mm-hmm. And yet how ironic that when we are caught in our own kind of death spiral of procrastination, like that's where a lot of the negative self-talk comes from. And I, I think a lot of that kind of like muster up the strength and the, and the courage and the, and the, you know, the diligence on your own sometimes can lead to, to more discouragement. Yep. And in this article that I read, it says, what's the next action? Instead of fretting about the huge project you have to do and all the stress that it will entail, ask yourself, what's the next action? I need to open up my computer and read the email. Hmm. I'm not going to worry about responding to it or anything else. The next action is opening the email by asking what's the next action you one, give the monkey brain something to do Two, you engage with the emotions you're feeling about the task. And three, you focus on actions rather than projects, Good. right? So projects are the things that like crush us, but actions, actions are, you can actually kind of align those. Like I right, was yeah. the next action and you slowly start to, chip away at the mountain rather than just sort of get buried underneath it. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, I think so compelling. It's really helpful. Like 
the answer to most of these things, right, is always baby steps, like right. uh, putting it on your calendar, making sure. But some of it's just internal motivation of believing these things to be true, that if I avoid the hard things of life, it's going to make them harder, right. not go away just because they're going to be a week later. Now you're just going to be thinking about it for a week. Yeah, that's right. Well, coming up next, it is Monday, yes, and Brian is. and I are both pastors, so we like to spend at least one segment just kind of talking about what did you preach yesterday? How did you feel about it? And what are maybe some takeaways that we can learn? That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hello, lads and ladies. Welcome back to The Common Good. I don't think I've done that one yet. No, that was a good one. Probably, is it a good one? That is. I like I lads and say ladies. I for, it's for good reason that I've not done it before, and I hope to never do it again. <laughs> uh, my name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, and I encourage you to at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com, plus wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you like and share and review, that stuff actually helps. Mm-hmm. And if you already have... Thank you so much. That actually really means a lot to both of us that you would take time to download it, to listen to it, to share it with your friends. Uh, we really, really, really do appreciate that. Absolutely. And uh, we mentioned it probably far too often that Brian and I are both pastors, pastors in the Chicagoland area. And with that comes all sorts of really crazy stories, but also some really beautiful, loving parts of it, too. And Mondays are sort of the day after. Yes. The Sunday experience, the Sunday gathering, and uh, we often like to talk about what did you preach because that's not something we, we get to do sort of in our regular rhythms. Like after a sermon is preached, you're, you tend to, you know, you're working on the next one. Yep. You're working on the next task. And so it is, it, it may, and hopefully it's actually enjoyable for other people, but it is fun for me, especially, you know, I don't go to your church, so I'd love to just hear what did you preach? How would you feel about it? You what, should come to my church. I'd love to, you man. You should. Let's do it. You looking for a good church? <laughs> <laughs> I got a good there church. There you go. So as Ian said, I'm pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien and uh, love preaching, man. And yesterday was kind of like a one-off. So we finished a series two weeks ago. We start a series next week for the rest of the summer. And I just kind of said, I'm going to take a week and just kind of, you know, talk about something on my heart. And, uh, you know what? I talked about the concept of apathy. Apathy. Mm-hmm. I, I I began by talking about how our marriages don't ever go from like blissful to broken overnight, right? There's this drift, mm-hmm. and then kind of liken that to our faith. There's there's this drift where if you've been a Christian for a long time, just your faith can become boring. It can become apathetic. I, you know, lukewarm to use the Book of Revelation. Yeah, right. Um, I literally just punched my computer accidentally. I are talk you, with my hand. Are you mad at the computer? Here, that, <laughs> and the um, computer had it coming. <laughs> and uh, and so I asked this question. I said, "What is the antidote to apathy? What do you do uh, in order to not just go down that road?" And so we read a couple different passages, and I pointed out that in these passages there is one three letter word in all of them. It's it's the it's this word awe a w e. And talked about what does awe look like and what is the result. So I said uh, it begins with the awe of who God is. Not It doesn't begin with the awe of what he's done that comes, but it begins with who he is. Mm-hmm. And that the more we think on God's character, the more we realize that he is just beyond our comprehension. But so many of us shrink him to kind of be like, right. And, and then out of that, we, we kind of see more accurately ourselves. And then out of that, we become in awe of what he's done for us. Mm. And so that was yesterday, man. It was just a, an encouragement to people to be in awe of God. And that I talked about Isaiah six, that if we were literally in the presence of God, like being in awe would not be an issue. Right. (laughs) Right. 
Uh, that's where Isaiah, you know, it falls before God and says, uh, woe is me. I'm a dead man. Yep. I'm a sinner. Uh, and so I think it went well. You know, a lot of times when we preach out of our own stuff where, you know, I think that those of us who are constantly preaching and we're professional Christians and this and that, you can <laughs> lose that all. You can become apathetic. It can become sure. kind of ho-hum and uh, got some great feedback on it. And uh, yeah. So how about yourself? We talked about church fights. Perfect. <laughs> Did you know that sometimes Christians don't get along? I've heard about that in other churches. Yeah, right, right. That's what every pastor I've asked has yep. said. Yep. So we're in a, a short three-week series called The World's Gone Mad. Last week we talked about mad at me. Sometimes the anger that we feel is actually directed toward ourselves. Next week we're talking about mad at them, mm. which will be, that'll be really, because, you know, it's whatever the them is for you. You know, yep. their skin colors, languages, political affiliation, you know, whatever that is. And uh, so, but yesterday we talked about mad at us. What does it look like when the church fights? How do we how do we fight well? That's I opened awesome. with Tom Rainer did a survey a couple weeks ago on just silly church fights. And so I shared a couple of my favorites. Holy cow. They're amazing. Things like whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at the potluck meal <laughs> or whether or not you should call it potluck at all. You should call it pot blessing instead. Or, you know, like re- <laughs> honestly got real things That's awesome. about. So the whole talk was making the time case. Out. Yeah. Time, okay. out. time out. You made I need to give credit where credit's due. You and I were discussing this beforehand a little bit. You had just an awesome pun around the deviled eggs one. I need it. Come on. It's 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 good. Well, it's really Tom Rainer's. I got to I got to give him uh, credit. Okay. The answer is, yeah, you can have deviled egg uh, as long as you have angel food cake for dessert. That's <laughs> that's how you balance I don't know why it out. I find that so funny. I know exactly why. John also does. Again, the, the applause that sounds more like water. I never understand it does. that I could fall sound asleep effect. To that. That's like white noise. <laughs> that's good. Anyway, keep going to the but meat. We, we spent the whole talk making the case for unity. And, you know, I first mm. kind of set up like uni- unity is not uniformity. Mm-hmm. The goal isn't for us to look and talk and act exactly the same. But... There's all these passages where, you know, the Apostle Paul says that we're like a body, right? And so an ear can't say to the hand, I don't need you because you're not an ear. Like mm-hmm. we're meant to live in this diversity. And diversity is something that we're not just supposed to be okay with. I think we should celebrate as a church. I think mm. our communities are richer when there's diversity, when we think and talk and act a little bit differently. And then we talked about unity being mission critical and how for a lot of people, unity is like this nice flowery thing that would be nice if we could get there, yeah. but we talked about it much more intensely. And so we had this, this Venn diagram that uh, Patrick O'Connell from new thing actually developed on this idea of, you know, Matthew 28 is the go passage, the great commission. And Matthew 22 is the love passage, right? Love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's go, but also how to go. You go in love. Yeah. The third piece is the John 17 prayer for unity. It's not just that you go and it's not just that you go in love, that you go in love together in unity. Hmm. And it's why Jesus, I think, so often is saying things like in Matthew 5, he says, if you're at the altar and you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there and go and be reconciled. And he's speaking to people, by the way, who lived in Galilee. The only altar they knew of was the temple in Jerusalem, which was like an 80-mile trip. Wow. So so that could be to leave your gift and go and be reconciled. It's a big deal. That could have meant like a trip of a week or more. Wow. So this is, you know, we live with the crazy belief that Jesus actually <laughs> meant what he said. So it was actually pretty interesting. We, after the talk, we, um, before we actually, we call it giving back to God, our tithes and offerings. Before we did that, I said, the next few moments are yours. Maybe you need to make a phone call right now. Maybe mm. you need to send a text message right now. Maybe you're with someone here right now and you need to go have a conversation with them. Go, go and be reconciled. The apostle Paul says, make every effort, which implies mm. that sometimes 
Unity is going to be hard, yeah, right? Yeah. And thinking alike is not the same as thinking together. The goal isn't for us to all just sort of be robots and clones of each other. But the idea that, you know, any pain that's not transformed is transmitted. Yeah. And when we don't actually deal with these things, um, it can actually come out in some really hurtful ways. And what I love about the John 17 passage is that Jesus seems to imply that it's the unity of the church that will, one, communicate that Jesus was for real. And two, mm-hmm. that that God loves them. It's a big deal. Yeah, that's yeah. how the world will know when they see the church like l- living and loving and forgiving and offering grace and mercy. Like that's what people that don't want anything to do with the Bible or Jesus will see and say, "Oh man, there's something really beautiful to the way this community yeah. lives." And so that for me it was like a really it was a cool, powerful kind of Sunday to like to talk about something that we don't often talk about, you know, especially with social media fights and stuff just seems to be spinning out of control. What what does it look like for the church to be, you know, in unity together, which is something that I'm, I'm always, always, always passionate about and always excited about. I, uh, I think that's such an important line. I've used it before too, actually. Uh, the, the line about we're called to have unity, not uniformity. Yeah. I really think we get that wrong most of the time. Totally. We we just make the two the same and then it gets dangerous. Yeah. Not only do I think it's dangerous, I think it's boring. No, that's good. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, had a, I had a mentor when I was a kid, and he would say, um, the church is kind of like a stew. And how boring would a stew be if it was only one flavor? Right? Like, it's, it's we're, we're meant to have this diversity and to celebrate that and to lean into that and not shy away from it. Mm. All right. Well, coming up next, a Republican candidate invokes the Billy Graham rule to block a female reporter from the campaign trip. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone welcome back to the common good brian from is right that's the most i've seen you rock out maybe in the history of this show it feels like it deserves it how would you describe the movements that you were just making oh completely uh centered on my head just all head <laughs> head centric movements yes. that's <laughs> the rest of my body is completely still it's the best kind of dancing i do that's exactly what was standing out to me and i'm so glad you identified that. i was like his body is stoic but his head is very yeah. bobblish. Monday, very, I don't feel like moving all over. <laughs> I don't feel like moving all over. By the way, because also at our church, VBS started this week. We call it Camp at the Corners. Okay. Oh, boy. Lots of kids this morning. Camp Crazy. at the Corners is clever, though. That's what we've always called it since the beginning. I did not come up with it, but I, I do enjoy it. Camp is, at the Corners. This isn't at all what we're going to talk about, but is VBS a big deal at your church? It is. You know, I think it's a fun tradition. And, you know, we use a lot of the canned stuff that a lot of the church, you know, kind of the same churches from... They use around town and it's, it's, I'm always struck by how awesome our volunteers are yes. and the kids have fun, right? Yep. Like it's not, uh, I think I have a good idea of what it actually is, but the kids love it and, uh, and it, the volunteers do awesome work. My wife kind of helps lead it and she's completely, uh, spent by the end of the week. Yeah, I totally so, get it. Uh, but I enjoy, I just kind of, I don't really have a role there. I just kind of come and I shake lots of hands. I bought the donuts today and good man. Uh, and then I try to find a spot to hide to do a little bit of work and come back out and shake hands. So it's a good time. Come, come and do a radio show. Yeah, sure. That too. I was like, can we please do it earlier today? <laughs> I'll meet you at 6 a.m. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I teased this out a little earlier. Republican candidate invokes Billy Graham rule Mm. to block female reporter from campaign trips. I'm going to play some audio for you. So the first uh, voice you hear is reporter Larison Campbell, and she's sort of um, explaining her goal as a campaign reporter. So you'll hear a little bit back and forth between her and uh, Robert Foster, the Mississippi governor, and uh, then I'll get your reactions after that. We want to show, you know, our readers 
not only like what it's like to be on the campaign trail, but sort of like the candidates' ideas, goals for Mississippi through the lens of how they're interacting with people, how they're campaigning, how they're selling their message. And they're going to look at a glimpse of somebody passing in a car or sitting together at a restaurant, eating alone with someone, and they're not always going to... They're going to make assumptions, and that's the way people are. And I don't want to put myself in a position to be assumed that I'm doing something I shouldn't be that's inappropriate. It's all a possibility that my political opponents could try to exploit something against me if they wanted to, if they felt threatened in the race, that they might need an extra bump in the polls or uh, knock me down a few points. A woman only looks improper in this context if you view her as a sexual being first and as a reporter second. I was trying to do my job, and they, I mean, they, they sexualized me. I didn't mean it in that way at all. It's just a policy that I've always had in my personal business and I continue to have in my political life uh, and, and in personal life as well, that I'm not alone with, uh, with, with another female that's not my wife. All right, Brian, I'm curious <laughs> your thoughts now that as, you, as you've read the article and you've heard some of the responses, where do you, uh, where do you land in all this? Yeah, this is one of those ones where I'm going to work it out while the microphone's in front of me, I mean, right? This will be fun. Because on the one hand, I want to say... Uh, hey, man, you're a public figure. She's a reporter. Um, it is it is unfair to to kind of make these artificial lines like a hey, like, like that's kind of what you signed up for in, in getting in this race. Uh, on the other hand, I do know that, like I set up parameters around my life as a pastor um, about where I will meet alone with women. And it's not because I think that like. I'm going to do anything or they're going to do anything necessarily, but it's because it, quite frankly, it's how I was always kind of taught from early mm-hmm. on in ministry. And mm-hmm. also it feels like wisdom to me. And so um, I, I don't, I, I don't have a rule where I don't meet alone with women. I think that would be wholly unfair, but I do try to do it at places like Starbucks or Panera where it's more out, you know, there's other people around. Uh, but yet I also know Let's see, this is where I'm going to keep going back and forth because <laughs> that 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 can feel unfair, especially where, uh, you know, the senior pastor of a church or the candidate is a male. So so it's the woman who's who's kind of getting the raw end of the deal here. And so I think on this particular subject, I'm going to side with the reporter because you signed up to run for a public office. She mm-hmm. is an employee of a newspaper that is covering you. Uh, that feels different than maybe a pastoral personal conversation that, that, you know, that feels a little different to me, but I do, I let's put it this way. I'm not one of these people who says a hundred percent, the Billy Graham rule or the Mike Pence rule is just bad and unfair. Yeah. I also think it's a cop out in this situation. And so um, his, some of his quotes later also, I think he is trying to get a little bit of publicity for this. And so, uh, that's where I stand. I don't know what's what. What do you think about this guy, and and what are some of the parameters you put up in your own personal life as a pastor who's asked to meet with people probably on a regular basis? Yeah, I I remember even the first time really interacting with this idea. I was probably still in high school. You know, I was one of the first of my friends to get a license, and uh, my you know I'm from a family of nine, so our yeah. family van was a shuttle bus. <laughs> so you know, I would leave events two hours before I had to be there just to pick everybody up and yes. drop everybody off. And I remember like my folks having a pretty serious talk, like, Hey, be, be mindful of who the last people are that you drop off. And I remember thinking, 
Wait, what? Why? Why? Why does that even matter? And and even you know, like sixteen, seventeen, feeling a little naive yeah. to you know, not only to the optics, but you know what what could potentially comes an accusation that you then have very little recourse. So that I've been ruminating on that for a long, long time. Yes. Uh, I think my opinions have shifted a good deal since then in the last 20 years, um, 20 years. Is that right? Holy cow. Yep. Since, since yeah. I got my license, but I also can't get around the fact that like Jesus didn't follow the Billy Graham rule, yeah. right? He scandalized the disciples by meeting with the woman at the well alone. Yeah. Like yeah. there, you know what I mean? There's certainly a part of that that I, f- I feel like, like you said, I think the word you used was cop out. I'd be curious to know why you think it's a cop out. Was is this guy is he just overreaching? Is he afraid of what press she might report on? Is it I don't know. overly protective? Is it overly caught is it is it leading out of fear? Is it is it appropriate boundaries because you can't control optics and it's better to be safe than sorry? What does that say about like like what this reporter is saying, how we over sexualize women so often and I think a lot of women leaders unfortunately miss out on conversations and opportunities because this, yes. these policies like these are in place, but I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm also a little bit torn. I'd, I'd love to know why in general you think this is a cop out on the, on the case of this politician. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think um, there are ways that he could go about having these, even if this was completely a principled decision by him, yeah. right? There are ways to go about it other than say, you have to bring a guy colleague with you. Right. There are things he could set up like he doesn't feel like it's he's being very gracious going understanding the the spot he's putting her in. I guess that's where I'd say it's a cop out. Hmm. And for me, I guess it's also a lot grayer than I made it seem to be like I've got female staff members. I meet with them alone at the church regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I trust them. My wife trusts them. Right. Like all this stuff. Um, But person who wants to meet with me who I don't know. Right. uh, I don't. But probably in this day and age, that's probably wisdom about when a man wants to meet with you alone, too. <laughs> like, there's probably some wisdom there. Yeah. Uh, and so I, you could probably hear in my voice, I don't have my mind around this one because I know I was raised in ministry pretty black and white, to be honest with you, especially as a youth pastor, which is a whole different deal. It is, for sure. Uh, but I was raised very much, you you're, shouldn't be alone with a woman, like, in your office. It's just bad practice. Mm. And so I do get the conversation and the graying of this, but that is always what's in the back of my mind. Like when you're yeah. right, when, when that's what you're taught, uh, that's kind of your practice. And so I do think it's an interesting conversation. I would quite frankly, I'm sure we're going to post this on Facebook or have already. I'd love to hear what people have to say about it. Yeah. And that's, that really is one of those cases where like point us to articles, point us to studies, point us to stuff that research that you can find, because I think that this is, I think there's a whole lot more going on rather than, Oh, it's just good boundaries. Yep. I think it also communicates a lot of other things, good or bad that uh, if we don't actually talk about, the thing beneath the thing yeah. we stand to just sort of continue to function at this surface level. That is maybe not all that helpful. Mm. And uh, I think like what you're saying, there is a lot to be said about just the thing that you're raised in and having, you know, the courage to, to really look at it with a uh, kind of a clear set of lenses yeah, is to question it. And right. Even but if you end up in the same spot, totally way easier said than done. Well, coming up next, smartphones and tablets are causing mental health issues in kids as young as two years old, which most certainly applies to me. We're talking about that next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. 
This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good, or if you're just joining us, regular old welcome. Regular Hello. <laughs> just thanks for being here. Uh-huh. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a couple of places. One, probably at a Baskin-Robbins. <laughs> Two, on nope. Facebook. No? No. What do you mean, no? I, I don't know the last time I've been to a Baskin-Robbins. Dairy Queen. Or oh, you're one of those Coco Mero in oh, the frozen yogurt place, the Froyo, if you will. If you could see Brian's pinky in the air right now, yeah. I didn't realize you were so high society by Dairy Queen. <laughs> yeah, but to, to snuff Baskin Robbins like that's beneath you. Not snuffing, and I'm just saying I don't know the last time I've been to one. For those of you listening, did it feel like snuff? Let's talk about this. Let's spend <laughs> nine and a half minutes. <laughs> my problem is, my mom used to say when I was a kid, I would just go and sample like 15 of them. And then not make a choice. I'm out of here. And she's like, I'm going to stop bringing you to Baskin Robbins because this isn't fun for anybody. Speaking of sampling, there's a place in Downers (laughs) Grove on 75th Street called Zoop. Is is that other places or just there? It's like Uh, a soup and sandwich place. But like a Baskin Robbins, they have like 20 different soups. And you can sample as many as you want. That's it's this brilliant. little club, this little cup. And you'll be like, hey, I want to sample the chili. I want to sample the... 75th and kind of Lamont Road. It's right next to like a Noodles and Company and a Panera. They're all right there. It's called Zoop. And I think they, no, they definitely are other places. I don't think it's just there. So why don't more people do that? But the sample is, uh, it's great. You'd be like, oh, I wonder if I'd like that one. And this segment brought to you by Zoop. (laughs) If you work at Zoop, give us a call. I mean, if they want to sponsor us, I'm fine with that. Can we just just make a cattle call? Hey, Give us soup. You don't need to pay money. Just soup. (laughs) Okay. I don't know that we can say that over the air. I can say that. It might not be true, but. Mm. All right. (laughs) Anywho, here's what I want to talk about. Article I found uh, says smartphones and tablets are causing mental health issues in kids as young as two. Mm. So I have a 20 month old and a five month old, six month old, something like that. So this is like. It's your kid. I don't know. (laughs) Right. You don't don't keep tabs on my kid's age. (laughs) Uh, so this is like not only timely, but also something that my wife and I talk a good deal about and, and we we struggle with it because sometimes, I mean, you, I mean, you get it like they're having a meltdown or they're both having a meltdown. I like, just turn the TV on with one of them or just yep. give them your phone. But uh, why don't you fill some of the information buckets here and then we'll kind of grapple with it a little bit. Yep. It says just an hour a day staring at a screen can be enough to make children more likely to be anxious or depressed. This could be making them less curious, less able to finish tasks, less emotionally stable and lowering their self-control. Although teenagers are most at risk from the damaging devices, children under the age of 10 and toddlers still developing brains are also still affected. And research shows that, quote, zombie children (laughs) spend nearly five hours every day uh, looking at electronic devices. And it says this half of mental health problems developed by adolescents. There is a need to identify factors linked to mental health issues that are able to be changed in this population as most are difficult or impossible to influence. And so basically it's saying uh, that that this uh, influx and increase of how much time kids are spending on their smartphones or tablets is not just a bad idea. It's yeah. not just adding to, you know, the, the issues of like obesity and stuff from not being physically active, but it's possibly being linked to uh, an inability to finish tasks, less emotional stability, lowering of self-control and just other uh, mental health issues like 
uh, depression and anxiety, man, it's a big deal. Well, and it ends by saying this. Experts warn that addicted children risk sleeplessness, obesity, falling victim to cyberbullying while losing valuable social skills through a lack of face-to-face contact. So, like, that stuff seems, I think, maybe more obvious. Uh, but I didn't realize this. So, so Gene Twenge uh, and Keith Campbell, who were both a part of this uh, research group from San Diego State University, said that half of mental health problems develop by adolescence. Had you heard anything even remotely close to that before? No. I have no idea. No. It says, uh, it says also suggests a similar limit. Perhaps two hours should be applied to school-age children and adolescents, she added. Yep. So it's this whole big study of more than 40,000 U.S. children aged 2 to 17 um, to kind of gauge. And obviously, adolescents, I think, probably are the most at risk because they typically have their own phone and they're interacting on their phones a whole That's lot. True. But like you were saying, it's not just the sleeplessness and the anxiety like part of what they found, they said among 14 to 17 year olds, more than four in 10 uh, of those in the study who spent more than seven hours a day on screens did not finish tasks. Mm. About one in 11 of 11 to 13 year olds who spent an hour with screens daily were not curious or interested in learning new things. So there's like obvious ramifications, right? Obesity, sleeplessness, right. cyberbullying, but there's way less obvious like, oh, they're just not as curious as they could be. Yep. They're not as interested in exploring new things and i think that's the kind of stuff that really interests me because we're we're kind of in a new era of even having metrics to measure these things smartphones haven't been around that long and what they're finding and we've talked about this in other segments that you know a lot of the people who are at the helm of developing these technologies are very strict about their children's usages that was one of the more fascinating things we've read recently and every time i see that i think okay what do you know that we don't know you develop this technology and you're way stricter with this than I am with my own kids. You must know something. I, yeah. I mean, I'd love to know how you grapple with this. Your kids are a little bit older, but mine, you know, I, I've even noticed with Owen, who's not even two yet, um, if we like take the phone away from him, there, there's like a like a very visceral reaction yeah. to the point where I'm like, I'm a little spooked by that. I don't think I like how much, how upset you are by that. And yeah. maybe that's just normal toddler stuff, but it, it worries me a little bit. What, what fascinates me with my kids, again, I have a, a girl that's about to be a sophomore, a son who's about to be in sixth grade, and a daughter who's about to be in fifth grade. And uh, what is amazing to me is uh, how often they're playing on their phone and doing something else, right? Like yeah. watching TV and playing on their phone or doing you know whatever else and on their phone. It's just kind of a, a, a thing that's there. And it is just, it's startling to read some of these stats. Like the fact that they're doing stats on kids that are on their phone seven hours or tablets seven hours a day. Right. That's a, that's a lot. I'm not a math major, but that's a lot of time. On average, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot, a lot of time. And so I do, I do believe it, man. I do. Um, even last night we were, some of us parents were joking. My son's baseball season ended and we were out with some of the parents and kids from the team and the, the kids were sitting at one table and the parents were sitting at another. And one of the moms joked, we looked over and the kids were all with each other. They were actually playing with each other, but they were all on their phones, looking at each other's phones. And uh, it was just really a difference. None of the parents were on phones. None of us were like, Hey, look at this. Right. But the guys, the, the boys, it's not like they were on their own phones. They were looking at each other's phones, but the phones were the center of, of the activity. It was, uh, it was really fascinating. And so you might be wondering, what's the answer? Uh, it says parents and teachers must cut the amount of time children spend online or watching television while they're su- studying, socializing, eating, or even uh, playing. It suggests one hour per day of screen time for children ages two to five 
And it also suggests a similar limit, perhaps two hours, should be applied to school-aged children and adolescents. For some of you out there, that would be a big lifestyle change. I'm just going to throw all of our devices in a river. That's what I wanted. I read stuff like this and go, nope, we're, we're moving to a farm. We're, we're, I mean, yep. it says preschoolers or uh, kids under five who are high users are twice as likely to often lose their temper and 46% more prone to not be able to calm down when excited. The U.S. National Institute of Health estimates that children and adolescents commonly spend an average of five to seven hours, like you said. And this year, the World Health Organization decided to include gaming disorder in their 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases. Wow. So, like, it to me is reaching a level of severity that um, I don't I don't know quite what to do with. And for me, and maybe you feel this as a parent, there's like this idealized version of how I parent. Yeah. And then like, there's the actual tired at the end of the day version yeah. of me when I parent yeah. where I'm like, man, I'm going to, we're going to eat all organic and we're going to farm it. And you get home and you're like, <laughs> Twinkies <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> strap it's, in. It's so true, man. And here's the, here's what scares me a little bit. These phones and the graphics and the games are just going to get better. They're just going to get more enticing. You don't think it reaches a critical mass where they're like, I'm not as interested in this. Like it's, I don't think I so. I wonder if it dives back down once it becomes so normalized, people are like less intrigued by it. I don't think that's going to happen. No. But I do think what's interesting for adults and kids is when they're off their phones, they enjoy it. I talked to a dad the other day. He was like, when the best thing about vacation is that none of us, I wasn't on my laptop at all. Yeah, right. I'm like, okay, did anything change when you came back? No, that was like a respite. <laughs> right. When we go on long car tri- or long vacations like we did last year, the kids aren't on their phones and they mm. love it. Mm. But it doesn't, there's no last. I think that the question becomes what's going to be your normal rhythm instead of just the week off here, week off there. What's, what's a healthy normal rhythm for your kids and for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, coming up next, Democrats and Republicans apparently are very bad at guessing each other's beliefs. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Coachella. <laughs> my, my name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. That's funny. It's not Sometimes that funny. Sometimes you just make me laugh. <laughs> it's like the surprise of what you joke about makes that's, me laugh. That's really 85% of my tactic. Yep. It's not actually funny. I just got to surprise you, which yeah. is sort of maybe also my approach in preaching. It's not actually that funny, <laughs> but if I just can catch you off guard, like wake you back up a second, which I am I am perfectly okay with that. I used to use a lot more props than I used to. Then you fell off the, uh, then I, the, yeah, then the hammock collapsed yep. underneath me. No, I still, but my belief was like, if, if I have to make an idiot of myself in order for you to remember this talk, I'm willing to do that. Mm. So I would just do I'm good absurd with ridiculous. You're fine with that too. Yeah. All right. So I teased it out before the break. I mean, I'm uh, good with you being, making Brian yourself Fromm, we an moved, idiot. We moved on, nope, Brian. Nope, we we got to pick up on social cues. I want to talk we, more about you being an idiot. This is, I want to compile a segment of me <laughs> moving on <laughs> And then 15 seconds later, I didn't realize you'd moved on. I, that's part of what I'm saying. That's what we need to, we got to work on that. I was more on the idiot part. <laughs> are, are we ready now? Moving on. Are we good? <laughs> is that what I got to say? I should moving say, on. I'll say moving on. You should like wave something in front I'll make, of me. I'll make deep eye contact. The irony is people don't probably don't realize we're sitting like three feet from each other facing each other. I think people probably guess that. I don't know. What I do you think wanna... people would assume? I would assume. He's not, you're not on my shoulders. I <laughs> think people would assume that this studio is bigger than it is. Really? I do. Why? I would assume it. When I listen to people, I kind of think they're around a big, kind of like the one over there across the hall at 560. Like, you could be pretty far from each other. Square footage between this and that are pretty similar, though. No way. Mm-hmm. Not of desk size, though. 
This was really compelling radio. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so before the show ends, we're going to get the actual measurements of the two desks. I like that we're having a conversation. Every now and then you're like, this isn't compelling radio. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not. Let's get moved on. That's right. (laughs) Like, you're going to listen to this back and go, why are we talking about this? Anywho, what did you say? Moving on. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, The Washington Post. Democrats and Republicans are very bad at guessing each other's beliefs. What's going on? Yeah, that is not surprising to me, actually, but it is um, interesting. Desk size is pretty different, though, between this studio (laughs) and the other studio. When you think about it, now that you mentioned it, Brian. (laughs) That's funny. Well played. All right, sorry. Go while the, while the rooms may be similar in size. Oh, man. They got lots of... Anyway, uh, what I would say is this is not surprising, but it is important for us to realize is that in these studies where they uh, they are trying to... And they did it in a really interesting way. They took some very liberal people from the city and drove them out and hung out with for days with very conservative people from the Midwest, maybe I think it was. Yeah. People that would be not alike at all. And what they found was they assumed things about each other that just weren't true. And here's what I think the main point here is. And we'll get at to why it's true Hmm. uh, is that uh, we think that everybody in our culture or the vast majority of people are polarized. Right. They're really right or they're really left. Right. And in reality, this this um, uh, article makes the point that our news media is very right or very left, whether it be Fox News, the Drudge Report, the New York Times, MSNBC, whatever else. And so that makes us think that everybody is when in reality, most people are a lot more nuanced and a lot more down the middle. So let me just read this one thing, because it is really interesting. It actually says that the more educated people are, the more this is an issue. The author writes this, the more education that Democrats in particular acquire, the more ignorant they seem to be about Republicans. No kidding. Democrats with post with a postgraduate degree are three times as inaccurate in their perceptions of Republicans as Democrats who dropped out of high school. Really? Interestingly, education does not seem to have this effect on Republicans, but Republicans are on verge on average just as ill-informed about Democrats for other reasons. And so there is this perception. People have these caricatures. Democrats have these caricatures of Republicans that this article is saying that that caricature is being built upon or even created by the media around us. And Republicans have these caricatures of Democrats that is also being built on by whether it be Fox News or Rush Limbaugh or whoever else it might be. And uh, that it's unhealthy and it's really not a good thing for our culture. And it's actually not accurate of our culture. And that's the most uh, that's the most uh, frustrating, but also hope giving thing. Oh, okay, we're not as polarized. Maybe there is some hope, but yet our perceptions are increasingly that we're polarized. Maybe it doesn't matter. I think it does matter. Let me read another part here that I found really compelling. It says Americans on each side imagine that almost twice as many people on the other side hold extreme views than actually do. Yep. So uh, a couple of scholars, Daniel Yudkin, Stephen Hawking, and Tim Dixon, uh, conducted a, a report called The Perception Gap. And uh, the survey conducted by the nonpartisan organization More in Common and the polling firm YouGov uh, was taken just after the 
2018 midterms says real and consequential differences separate Americans. But the more divided we get, the more mistakes we make. For example, Democrats estimate that about half of Republicans would admit that racism is still a problem in the United States. Mm. When in reality, 79 percent of Republicans say so. Republicans, meanwhile, think fully, uh, thankfully, half of Democrats would say that most police are bad people. The actual percentage is 15 percent. So I think. I think these kinds of studies are so important, and I obviously love the title More in Common, but like, <laughs> it's not this really squishy pie in the sky, like, can't we all just get along? It's, yeah. it's rooted in like real empirical evidence and data to say, hey, we still are going to disagree on a lot of these key issues. Yep. We are not as divided or not as different as we think, which makes me wonder, do we have a responsibility for better articulating where we see this false polarization happening in the media. Do we, the people have responsibility to say, Hey, I actually don't think that's factual. You're making money on the backs of sensationalism and you need to perpetuate the narrative that we're deeply divided. And there obviously are deep divides. I'm not saying, Oh, we're actually all getting along just fine. And there are no issues. I'm not saying that at all, but it makes me really wonder who stands to benefit most from perpetuating the narrative that we're super divided. Probably, politicians and mm-hmm. probably the big M media, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the interesting thing in this. Cause I, it made me think, why would the media on either side, what, what is that benefit of being so tribalism. polarizing it's tribalism? Yeah. And, and it's, it's clearly money, right? Media companies are of, uh, at their core money-making ventures. And right. so the metrics just must say the more, pol- more polarizing you are, the more eyes you get on you, the more clicks you get, right. the more money you make. Uh, and that's disheartening, but it is probably true. And uh, but yeah, man, it is so true. Like sometimes with my Republican friends, you would think that every Democrat in their mind wants to kill every baby and tax it 90 percent and uh, take everyone's guns away and do mm-hmm. this. And that on the Repo- on the Democrat side, that every Republican uh, hates everyone who doesn't look like them and all they want are their guns and all they want is just to be allowed to be racist and homophobic and all that other stuff. And I. I you get that caricature from from somewhere. Uh, but the beauty of this article is saying, hey, it's just not true. Let's find that common ground in the middle. And you asked whose job is it to, uh, to highlight it? I just think it's all of our if, if that's is really how we all are, then you've got to be willing to speak out against both sides. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, what did we talk about earlier in the day with uh, kind of those tweets from Donald Trump? Well, even if you're Republican, you'll be able to speak out against that. Right. And uh you know, you've got to be able to speak out against the things you don't agree with from the Democrat Party if you're a Democrat. And the more I think people see that, the more they'll remember, they'll realize, oh, my neighbor's views are a little more nuanced. Right. Oh, that person who sits down the row from me in church, their views a little more nuanced as opposed to just believing the caricatures of that, that are kind of placed out there for us. Well, and I also think this gives the church a really unique opportunity and responsibility to be the diverse people of God, because like you were saying, it can't just be about finding common ground. That's actually the goal. How do you find common ground? If you're not actually experiencing a mile in someone else's shoes, the church becomes this really beautiful, unique outpost in the world of how that actually can live out because we've seen, we're not going to get there in Facebook arguments. Nope. And so part of this whole article is sort of like, it actually took people being transplanted for a moment in someone else's environment, someone else's story, someone else's narrative. And the church is so perfectly set up to do that, that even when we look different politically, theologically, socially, racially, like we can actually learn to better engage with the differences rather than just kind of widening the polarized gap. And I think, 
we need to do that. And our churches need to be places where that can yes. actually happen, not where we just sort of flatten everything to sort of be, you know, one of the same. It's exactly what we were saying. It's it's unity, not uniformity. Yeah. And when we do that, well, man, I, I really, really think that some of these uh, some of these false dichotomies will start to fall away. Man, that's good. But sadly, in the paint with a broad brush, I understand that uh, the reputation currently of the evangelical church is not of doing this well. well let's change that. <laughs> I, I'm with you, man. All right. So we're going to kind of stick with this theme. Scott Sauls, who uh, we call him a friend of the show. We've never met him, but he's yeah, I feel like we've referenced more stuff yep. by him than anybody else. Uh, he wrote a really brilliant blog a couple weeks ago. It says, Toward a Truer Christianity, Abandoning Us Against Them. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. And I'd mentioned before the break, you know, in this kind of hyper-polarized, hyper-angry, kind of caught in our echo chambers and our confirmation bias, Articles like this one kind of cut through all the noise for me. We also sort of just like Scott Sauls anyway. He's he's one of the guys, one of the few guys that I know that is really good at sort of like the pithy, like tweetable quotes, but then also writes yep. with like a level of depth and wisdom. Often it's kind of one or the other. Like the person writes with a lot of depth, but they can't really distill it down to these like sticky statements mm-hmm. or all, all they write are like these sticky statements, and then they actually kind of struggle in the long form. So he, he wrote an article called Toward a Truer Christianity, Abandoning Us Against Them. And you can actually find this yourself at scottsauls.com. He wrote it on June 29th. Uh, why don't you fill us in on what he's talking about here, and uh, let's go at it. So he says, in my role as a so-called public Christian who leads a church and weighs in on the issues of the day through speaking, discourse, and writing, I'm eager to nurture environments in which people can openly disagree, but without the fear of being caricatured, labeled, or demonized. Man, that sounds like a great world. Yeah, right. In other words, I'm for disagreeing in an agreeable fashion. I guess you could say that I'm a strong advocate for tolerance. So he throws out that word on purpose. He wants to kind of talk about tolerance. He says Tim Keller, who we know is a, a well-known author, speaker, but he was also kind of Scott Saul's mentor. Uh, he says Tim Keller says that tolerance does not require us to abandon our convictions. True tolerance, says Keller, is revealed by how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. Tolerance that only tolerates people who think like us is not tolerance. Let's be honest. It is covert prejudice. It is a form of thinly veiled Contempt. I think that's fascinating because a lot of times we think with tolerance, you're just tolerating what someone else believes. And he's saying, no, tolerance is being able to disagree with people while still treating them well. And so I love it, even how Saul's titles this toward a truer Christianity, abandoning us against them. Here's what we need to realize. And we all do realize this is our culture. We talked about it earlier today is our culture is very much us against them. That's what we do. And uh, whether it be online, in the media, in our politics. And so Saul's is saying our Christianity cannot fall into that. It cannot be an us against them scenario, but instead needs to be something different that is around this concept of tolerance, as is always the case. Uh, <laughs> when I read Scott Saul's stuff, I'm like, yes, yes, I, I like that. How do we get to that? How do we do that? So uh, that's my take on this on this blog post by Saul so far. So here's what he says that I think kind of brings the whole thing together. He says, for the Christian witness to be taken seriously, which I think we all want, right? 
for the Christian witness to be taken seriously in an increasingly pluralistic, secular, non-religious environment such as the West, it's critical for Christians to learn and relearn the fine art of being able to, one, have integrity in our convictions, Mm -hmm. two, genuinely love, listen to, and serve those who do not share our convictions, and three, be committed to both at the same time. (laughs) And that third one is so important and so hard to do because I feel like we are prone to be really strong in one or the other, right? It's all about the strength of our convictions or it's all about serving our neighbor. And I think what he's saying here is that it needs to be both. And what we forget is that, you know, there's been all these articles that are writing about the year of outrage and outrage porn. Like that's all, all across the place. People are sort of noticing that the temperature is getting cranked up severely. And he says later in the article, He says, I like what a former Harvard chaplain said about bridging relational divides between people who disagree, even on the most fundamental level. He writes this, the divide between Christians and atheists is deep. I'm dedicated to bridging that divide, to working with atheists, Christians, and people of all different beliefs and backgrounds on building a more cooperative world. We have a lot of work to do. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest challenging and loving conversation across lines of difference. The Harvard chaplain's name is Chris Stedman. He describes himself both as queer and an atheist. Mm. So I imagine like even just telling you that much, does that change for you, Brian, from (laughs) what I just read of his, like, were you cheering and now not cheering? Like, does that expose some of our own kind of confirmation bias? Like, Oh, this is someone. Oh yeah. That sounds like our vision for the show. And then he, and I think Scott is writing this very intentionally this way. Yes. And he gives you the quote first and then he tells you about him. Right. So does that change? No, I like what that guy says. I'm for it. Like you said, you, you, it doesn't change uh, the message there. Uh, It does bring up some questions for me. What is, what is an atheist chaplain? But that that is uh, probably a conversation for another day. That is confusing. It feels oxymoronic to me, uh, if you will. Uh, But no, it doesn't really change what he said. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest, challenging and loving conversation across lines of difference. I would say that if that is true of our churches, our churches are winning. They're doing something right. We're doing what we are called to be doing. But you're right. I think he definitely went in there to stir the pot because by then dropping that he is a queer atheist uh, probably made a lot of people go, oh, wait, no, I don't like what he said. Yeah, right. Which is then becomes the definition of earlier of being intolerant and and not being able to have a conversation even with people you disagree with. I like what he says here. He says, do we realize how liberating and how Christ-like it is to enter discussions about culture's contested issues in a way that builds bridges instead of burning them? Can we see the rightness of inviting friends, colleagues, and neighbors to belong and journey with us before they believe with us? Can we see to the potential that there is for fruit if we begin to embrace people before they agree with us and uh, whether they end up agreeing with us at all? In this, Jesus shows us the way. When the rich young ruler walked away, rejecting Jesus' offer to come follow him, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. And as for the man who walked away from Jesus, he was sad, not angry or hostile. He was sad. And I think mm. that that is a really significant rubric i think for how we engage with people that we disagree with maybe on every point and i don't know that christians in particular do this one very well yeah he says later on from his book jesus outside the lines which can i just add is a fascinating book yeah is a great book it's called it's his very first book he wrote called jesus outside the lines Uh, he says what matters more to us that we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well 
that we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays, or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love. God have mercy on us if we do not love well, because all that matters to us is being right and winning arguments. Truth and love can go together. Truth and love must go together. Notice he doesn't say the loving thing is to never have arguments. Right. That's not his point. And I think we go that way. Like we always think it has to be truth or love. And he's not saying that. He said, how are we going to argue? How are we going to disagree? How are we going to love people who we vehemently disagree with? And that's where he's saying there's a truer Christianity abandoning the us against them. The other thing that I find frustrating, particularly in the course of like arguments and discourse, I think it was Deb Hirsch who said, um, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, not a feminine quality. Huh. And so often we That's talk good. about gentleness as weakness, but it's, it's quite literally given to us as one of the characteristics of the outpouring of a spirit filled life. So when he references Peter who talks about, yeah, be prepared to give a defense and do it with gentleness and respect, right? Or Paul said in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward yep. outsiders, let your speech Always be gracious. Always is sort of a comprehensive word. Like he's saying, (laughs) these guys were not making just like cute suggestions so that everyone behaved. He's saying that this is actually really, really important to your ecclesiology, your missiology. If you're if you're just right, but you're a jerk in doing it Mm. or you're unwilling to ever break bread with or have a conversation with or actually even learn about the person with whom you disagree. And he's like, you're not any better than what everyone else is already doing. Exactly. Like to be the peculiar people of Jesus, I think means that we look differently, especially in our disagreements. Yeah. And he talks about the basis of this being the grace that God has shown to us. He said, it's because of this reality, this grace that we Christians listen to this. We should be the least offended and the least offensive people in the world. Yeah, that's and really he says, good. maybe so that's powerful because I don't think that that is. I almost said I don't think that's true of a lot of us. I just don't think that's the goal hmm. of a lot of us. Whether it's true or not, I'm not sure that's the goal. And and I really like how he holds that up. Why don't you think it's the goal? It's not the it's not the it's not the pond that we swim in, right? It's not the that's not how our culture works. And so um, we we easily lose sight of the grace that's been shown to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, And we become over time less gracious people. And I think this is a great call that in view of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, show that same grace to other people. I think that's powerful. Yeah. The million dollar question for me comes right in the middle of the article. It says, what matters more to us that we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well, that we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays or that we win hearts with humility, truth and love. Again, Way easier said than done, but like I hear that, and I want to—I just want to stand up and cheer. I, yep. I would love for us to be a part of moving towards that kind of life. Well, it's the end of the show, almost, and as we end the show every single day with a little bit of interweb insanity, that's what's coming up next on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. That music can only mean one thing. One it, thing. It, it could probably mean a couple of things. <laughs> I'll tell you what it means on, on this show. This it show. means one thing. It means interweb insanity. Now, a couple of caveats. One, uh, Brian and I have not seen these stories at all. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, selected them. He's had a sadistic grin on his face all day long, which mm. makes me very worried. A little sunburn, too. It's right. It's also true. Go Cubs. He also uh, has installed, installed these uploaded sound clips 
that we have not heard. So those are associated with the stories we have not read. We have no idea what's coming. So if you're mad, uh, you can talk to Keith Conrad. But before we go on, Brian, earlier in the show, (laughs) was making a comment about the 560 desk in our desk here. So I took way too much time to track down a tape measure. Uh And I found out that at this desk or that desk, Brian and I would still be exactly... 43 inches apart. But that's... Either way. It's so, a longer desk, though. It's I'm standing the whole, by that. The whole the premise width was... The is the same. We're so far away from each... But we'd be even further away from each other at 560. I'm saying we would have the to, potential to be further away from each other. To the centimeter, we are the exact same distance apart. I'm still going to stand by the fact that we would have the potential to You're be You're not even standing. Yep. You, <laughs> I'm going to stand by the fact while I sit. Now, now standing. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Fromm has got, he's gotten out of the chair. Yep. Is Standing to his feet. My legs are asleep. And we're <laughs> Let's have a Royal Rumble. All right, Brian Fromm, why don't you kick us off? If you can even see me all the way over there, by the way. I know that we're so far apart. The Florida. Death. Florida. Florida. He shouted at John. Woman just, accused just... of sandwich assault. A woman was arrested for assault after throwing a sandwich at her boyfriend. According to arrest affidavits, 35-year-old Stacy Chamberlain was charged with domestic battery after getting into an argument with her live-in boyfriend over their pets attacking each other. During the argument, Chamberlain threw a sandwich at her boyfriend. While attempting to clean up the mess, Chamberlain pushed the man, causing a scratch. Come on, buddy. Officials did not release any information on the type of sandwich used in the argument. Oh, the terrorist ran that way. It was a run by fruiting. I'll get Don't worry. I feel like we have a lot of sandwich assault there stories are. in there. You know, John's also standing to his feet. Nope, I'm he, sitting again. He also, Brian's sitting back down. The fight is over. Yep. 43 inches, everybody. Canada, beverage cart stolen from golf course found 30 blocks away. Ooh. A five-kilometer joyride, however far that is. 30, uh, at that's least 30 blocks. Is it? But they're Canadian blocks. <laughs> Symmetric blocks. A uh, five-kilometer joyride, at least, on a city golf course beverage cart ended in downtown Edmonton Friday evening when the cart crashed and its pilot, it's called a pilot, fled from the scene. Edmonton resident Rebecca Campbell learned of the commotion after hearing a loud noise outside her home at 10.30 p.m. Her husband came to get her, saying, you've got to see this. This is <laughs> There's definitely something going on here. In a parking lot outside, Campbell found a golf cart caught by its underbub, underbelly, its underbelly, and a wheel stop. Yep. Canned drinks were scattered around its wheels. They're very slowly getting away. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, that's funny. I'm having trouble turning over the next one. Here we go. Shout it. Here we go. Florida. There it is. Mom arrested after daughter licks tongue depressor. Oh, boy. A Florida mom says she was just being silly with her kids after waiting a long time at a Jacksonville medical center. Authorities say she committed a felony that carries a maximum sentence of 20 years. Wait, what? Corey Ward, age 30, was arrested on a charge of tampering with a consumer product without regard for possible death or bodily injury after she shared a video of her daughter licking a tongue depressor and putting it back in the storage container. The video caption, don't tell me how to live my life, shows a sign reading, please don't touch medical supplies, thank you. Ward posted it to her Snapchat account where it was copied and posted to a local Facebook group. That makes sense. The clinic says it contacted police to request a, quote, full and thorough investigation when it became aware of the video and also removed all materials and containers from the specific exam room and re-sanitized our entire facility. The mother of five who says she received death threats after the video went viral is being held without bail. Wow. Say today. Brutal. Okay. 
That's the grossest one we've done. That was. That, that makes me uncomfortable. Ridiculous. I don't I, know. Arrested? Is it? That feels overkill to me. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not asking our opinion, though. Uh, New Jersey, your home state. Yes, Italian pizza chain offers orders of pizza crust only. Disgusting. One restaurant is getting the attention of carb lovers everywhere. Uh, Villa Italian Kitchen, a quick service pizza restaurant chain, will offer orders of pizza crust only starting July 18th. The restaurant said in a news release that it is proud to offer a, quote, tasty solution for crust enthusiasts with the launch of just the crust of its Neapolitan pizzas. Pizza, pizza. That's Little Caesars. <laughs> That's, That's your hometown. Now I'm mad. How, da- how dare you associate the Little Caesar with such a disgusting marketing ploy? Pennsylvania. I'm furious. Man facing. I'm not ready to move on from this. <laughs> man facing DUI charges after it's attempting blasphemy. to convince neighbors he had time machine was from the future. I'm sorry, I missed all of that. Can you? A man facing DUI charges after attempting to convince neighbors he had a time machine was from the future. A Canestogo, a Canestogo man is facing DUI charges after a disturbance in which he tried to convince neighbors he had a time machine and was from the future. On July 10th at around 4 p.m., uh, Jason Kolb allegedly approached a group of neighbors and told them it was the year 2015. Then Kolb tried to convince the neighbors that he had a time machine activated in his trailer and he was from the future 2019. Kolb allegedly attempted to use dates on his mail and a can of oysters with a 2019 expiration date. Uh-huh. Police arrested Kolb, who was found to be wanted on a simple assault warrant. During his arrest, police also noted that he was found to be in possession of a small baggie of white powder. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right, doesn't it? That's a weird story. Never a dull moment, my man. But tomorrow, we got another jam-packed day. We're going to talk about Hurricane Barry. We're going to talk about the most important chapter in the Bible. A whole lot of other stuff. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.